You're listening to the Sunday podcast from Life Point Church in Santan Valley, Arizona. We hope you are encouraged by today's message. For more information, visit us online at lifepointaz.com. You all listened so well to my impassioned Sarah McLaughlin plea to not bring sugar, and that is why I'm wearing the big shirt today because it was a rough week. But uh, thank you. Thank you. This is Tim. Awesome. Hello. Good morning. The great and mighty. So as you know, it is Pastor Appreciation Week, and uh, we're going to just take this time to honor our pastors. How many of you love your pastors? Can we get a clap? We have our elders up here, too, and we just want to take this time to pray for them. And how many of you know that we should not just pray for our pastors once a year during this week? We should lift them up in prayer constantly. We are a church that believes in the power of prayer. And we need to live that out and not just say it. I need to remind myself that too. If I actually believe what I'm saying, that I need to live it out. And that includes prayer and the power of prayer. Satan loves to take down leadership in the church. Because if you take down leadership, the sheep may scatter. And so we need to lift them up. There are spiritual attacks going on. Nathan preached a brilliant message about that just a few weeks ago. And so there is no shortage of spiritual attacks. But we serve a God that is greater than our enemy. And we need to make sure we cover them in prayer as, as often as we can. So we're going to do that right now. Would you reach out your hand? Lord, we thank you for these men of God who have given up whatever the world may offer so that they can serve you, that they are not in this for, for fame and fortune, Lord. They are pursuing you and your spirit, Lord. And we thank you for their humbleness, their desire to serve this church, that they, that they pray for this church, that they get on their knees before before you, Lord, for the communities that are represented here, for the people in this church, Lord, and that they do that weekly and sometimes without any recognition or glory for themselves, Lord, because they give glory back to you. And so we take this time, Lord, to lift them up, Lord, in the spirit, Lord, would your Holy Spirit cover them. We pray a hedge of protection around them for any attacks, Lord, that they would be strong in the faith, that they would wear their spiritual armor daily, Lord, and we as a church lift them up, even when they cannot lift up themselves, Lord, we would come under them, and we would cover them, Lord, with prayer daily, Lord. We just ask a prayer, we ask a blessing over them, their families, their children, that their marriages would be strengthened, Lord, that they would be an example to other marriages, Lord, that others would see the spirit in them, that they would be drawn to the love the grace, and the truth that is spoken by the words of these men of God. And we thank you, Lord, for what they're doing for this church, where they're leading this church, Lord, that they seek you first, Lord, that they, they go before you in prayer. And we thank you, Lord, for, for what they're doing. And we just pray a blessing over them, Lord, to cover them, Jesus, in your name, Lord. Amen. Amen. A very humbling week indeed. It is uh, difficult sometimes to just have people come in and thank you and shake your hands and bring you tons of delicious food um, over and over. And so we were greatly humbled this week by those of you in this congregation. We know we're loved. All right, a couple of announcements. While I'm giving the announcements, you can open your Bible to Hebrews chapter 2 if you'd like so we can hit the ground running. First announcement is this. We are trying to decide when to reopen the 8 a.m. service, okay? And so in order to do this, yes, I know, there are some fans here and at home especially. Now, the 8 a.m. service will be lightly attended. We're going to open it when we can get about 50 people to commit. This is a 400-person sanctuary, so you would have plenty of room to spread out 
um, and socially distant, especially if you're at home, and the second and the third service are too much. But we need to know. We need to know because it's a lot of work and it's a lot of extra volunteers and kids' life and on the worship team and everything else. And so we're asking you if, you're, if you can make it to be able to uh, hit us up at info at lifepointaz.com. Info at lifepointaz.com. Let us know if the 8 a.m. service is something you'd like us to be able to bring back. We're hoping to be able to bring it back in November. We know a lot of our winter visitors are coming back, maybe. So uh, let us know. And if you're a winter visitor, let us know as well. Secondly, we need volunteers in Kids Life, Kids Life Junior. As you can see and tell by the services, more and more of us are coming back from watching online, which is awesome. I think Matthew said last week he had over 80 kids in his class. As you can imagine, we need volunteers to help and break them up into small groups and uh, hit them on the head with these soft foam noodles that we have when they get out of order. If for that reason alone you volunteer, it will be worth it. So don't downplay the volunteering. And then, of course, sharing with our birth to kinder. Um, we desperately need volunteers. And just so you're aware, Sharon and I signed a contract this week. The contract states that if we go to start service and there is not a volunteer to watch one of our rooms in the birth to kinder, I will not start preaching until someone goes over there. We will have awkward silence until someone gets up and goes and watches the little ones. So be prepared. You've been warned. And uh, we need help. So talk with Sharon, information table out there or over by the children's check-in. We need help. We're asking for like one day every six weeks, not even both services. Really important to get us, uh, make sure that we're keeping the kids from killing each other, I think. And we teach Jesus and Bible study stuff. Okay. Hebrews 2, and we are in chap, uh, verse 5. Last week I explained, we talked about the end of Hebrews and the angels. We have covered angels at length now. Hopefully it has helped given you a better understanding. A few months ago we covered the demonic. We went through the limitations and powers of both sets of beings. And now we're going to move on to the greater than, and that is Jesus Christ. And so last week we looked at uh, one through four, which was uh, who Jesus was. Pay attention. You will drift away. You're prone to wonder, so be careful. And now we're going to get into uh, probably one of the most just theologically rich sections of Scripture because this is the author saying Jesus was fully human. He was not half human, half God. He was not a demigod, right? Because half of, you know, the Holy Spirit implanted the seed, and then he was born of woman, so he was half and half. He is 100%, 100%. Something that we could, would, might call an impossibility inside of our minds and our realm, and yet being fully God and fully human is what Jesus was. And so this is what the author, even so early on in the church, in the faith, is going to make known. So verse 5, chapter 2, starts like this. It is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come, about which we are speaking, but there is a place. There is a place where someone testified, what is mankind that you are mindful of them? A son of man that you would care for him. You made them a little lower than the angels. You crowned them with glory and honor and put everything under their feet. This is quotes from Psalms. Again, the author is going back and showing the reader that from the Old Testament, Jesus Christ was being talked about. 
He was being laid out in the Psalms of David, the words of Isaiah the prophet, okay? In putting everything under them, God left nothing that is not subject to them. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to them. But we do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. I want to make sure we do not run past these verses, that we do not just read over them. Are you capturing what it's saying? Jesus, the second part of the Trinity, a triune God, one being three persons, made himself lower than the angels, confined himself to a human body, bacteria, viruses, food, sleep, God Almighty, outside of time, outside of creation, eternal being, experienced fatigue and pain, perhaps boredom, and was made lower than the angels. Why? So that by the grace of God, he would taste the death that was meant for us. He would taste the death. You see, as a creation of this God, I struggle to love this God. I struggle to seek after him. I struggle to desire God. Anybody else that feel that? Even as a believer for 30 plus years, I struggle to still desire it. My own comfort comes in, right? Sometimes just being hungry is enough. I mean, look at Esau. He sold his birthright for a bowl of soup. That's how, that's how little we think of God Almighty. That's how quickly we can become distracted by the wants and the desires of our flesh. And Jesus Christ felt every single one of those and then tasted death on our behalf. In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, John 1, 1, right? He's, he should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters in the assembly. I will sing your praises. I want you to catch this because when it says that he was, his salvation was perfected through his suffering, it is not the mere act of becoming human that saved us. It is not the miracles. There is an aspect of suffering that is akin to all of us, all mankind, in an understanding as the creation of who our creator is. Doesn't it seem only logical that if you were the devil, you would get the creation of God to hate the very thing that lets us know who he is. Get them to hate suffering. Get them to avoid it at all costs. Flood them with wealth and comfort, with friends, with food, with every type of entertainment. Flood them with it so that they might not suffer. Actually, not just that they wouldn't suffer, but that they would actually turn to look at suffering as him punishing them. Let that hit you for a second. How many times have you cried out to God 
and said, how dare you? Anybody? How many times have you said, how dare you allow this in my life? I have. Haven't I served you? Haven't I loved you? Haven't I given up all of this stuff for you? And aren't you almighty? Aren't you all-knowing? You could do anything, right? That's what you told Satan. You said there could be a legion of angels here for me. So why didn't you do that for me? And the devil has got us in the church in America to believe that God is not for any type of suffering for his believers. In fact, that is being preached word for word. And yet, I don't know how you could possibly read what I just read, that the pioneer of our salvation was perfect through what he suffered. And therefore, we know through Paul's writings and Peter's, that it is through our suffering that we are then made perfect. So why would I avoid it at all costs? Why would I not do things because suffering might be involved? This isn't even what the message is about today, but I just I couldn't get past this part of, of that in it we are made holy as he is holy. In it we are given the name family. And we've talked about this so much, but family in the time that this is written meant so much more than it is today. It means more in other cultures around the world than it does in American culture. But to be a part of the family, to be included, to be gifted and given the inheritance of the patriarch of the family is a huge deal. It meant everything. It meant you weren't alone, you weren't abandoned, you weren't without hope. And he says it right here, because of this, you are his family. And he is not ashamed to call you brother and sister. Wow. He's not ashamed. In fact, he's not just not ashamed. He declares it in the assembly. You are my brother and you are my sister. Sometimes letting this sink in in the midst of a week and a season in our world that is just full of everything else. Let it sink in. God Almighty calls you brother or sister. He loves you deeply. You were worthy. You were worth his time, his suffering to redeem you. Verse 13 says, and again, and again, I will put my trust in him. And again, he says, here am I and the children God has given me. Quoting the prophets once again. Since the children have flesh and blood, right? Now he's talking about his creation. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity. So that by his death, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Let's pray. Father God, as we go through this this morning, I do pray for wisdom, courage, and for your Holy Spirit to just reveal truth in us. Bring it out in those you have been leading to the cross this week, Lord. Help us to see you. In Jesus' name, amen. We've always been puzzled by death, haven't we? That's actually what this morning's sermon is all about. It's about death and the fear of death. I just couldn't get past those first 
13 verses and understanding the humanity of God, the suffering of God, the beauty of what he did, and how the author speaks so delicately and so clearly about it, that there's no confusion, that anybody who wants to say that he was half man, half God, anyone that wants to say God is only for your good and no suffering comes from him, anyone who wants to say that, you should be able to take them straight to Hebrews 2 and say, I'd like to refute the ideology you are presenting about God. More than that, we fear death. We fear death. Typically, in most surveys throughout the last few decades, the only thing feared next to death is public speaking. Some people would rather just die than get up and speak in front of a group of people. We fear death because there's not a lot of people who have come back from it. I know one. You guys know, there's a few others, right? And they're dead. They didn't write a lot, so we don't know about what it was like. Aristotle, he's a pretty smart guy. We, as a world, sort of trust him as, as, as a thinking man. He says, he feared death because it appears to be the end of everything. That's pretty basic, Aristotle. I could have told you that. I mean, blah. It appears to be the end of everything. Okay. Aren't you supposed to be... Okay, John Paul Sartre, right, the existentialist philosopher, he said, death removes all meaning from life. <laughs> what a hopeless sentiment. <laughs> Look what I've done. Look at the children I've saved and the family I've raised and the crops I've produced. Yeah, but you're going to die. Your life's meaningless. I'm John Paul Sartre. I'll be here all week. <laughs> Has no meaning because of death. And to be honest, death is the end of everything if you don't know who your creator is. If you believe that this was all just random chance, why are you spending so much of your life being a good person? Go get what's yours. Do what's good for you, for heaven's sakes. Death is the end of it for you. You better enjoy life now. There's no need to look out for other people. That's a silly thing. Does a lion worry about the zebra's uh, children when it takes down the mom? Nah, I'm starving and all, but you've got those two kids. Who's going to look after them? If death is really all there is, if we actually believed that as humans, we would not be as civilized as we are. Death for mankind was like being trapped, right? We were trapped. There was no way out of it. Our greatest thinkers would philosophize about what it must be like and, and how we could avoid it. And we've come up with billions of religions and ideas and thoughts in order to escape death and maybe provide us some sort of eternal happiness or heaven. And yet, here's this Christ who comes to earth in the most humble, simplest way possible, who goes against every other type of religion, of attaining, of working hard, of being moral, who comes down in a way that no other religion even talks about, to be fully God and fully man. And then he's going to do something that hinges on all of this working together. He's going to die, just like every other demigod or man who claimed to be a prophet or a man who claimed to be God. He's going to die. But there is one stark difference with Jesus is he went ahead and he got up. He got up. 
He stepped out of that tomb. He rolled that stone away and then went and showed himself to hundreds of people. It was no secret. And that difference is not a small difference. Are you with me? At before that, we were a hundred for a hundred with our gods and our prophets. They died, they're still there. We were batting a thousand. And then Jesus came along and messed the whole thing up. He walked out of that grave. Throughout the whole Old Testament, this, this was promised. The resurrection was promised. Job 19, 25 through 27. I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand upon the earth. That's not metaphorical, my friends. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes. I and not another. Oh, how my heart yearns within me. What a beautiful cry. If you're ever experiencing that suffering, if you're in the midst of the suffering, rather than curse God's name, go to Job 19, 25 through 27. And read it over and over again until you have it memorized. And watch what happens to your heart. Watch what happens to your mind when you begin to put those words into your life rather than curse the name of God because of the situation you're in. It's powerful. I'll just say that. It's powerful. Hosea 13, 14. God promised his people, I will ransom them from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. O death, I will be your plagues. O grave, I will be your destruction. Woo! Come on, let's not be some whitewashed tombs in here. I'm sorry, bleep it out for live streaming. Let's not be, he said, death, I will be the plague that destroys you. I will be the one who shuts your graves down. This is Hosea saying it. My redeemer, he will redeem his people. I will destroy the grave. I will destroy death. The 23rd Psalm we all love it because of the comforting words, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Just the shadow of it. I fear no evil, for my God is with me. And they didn't even, they didn't even know how it was going to unfold yet. You get that, right? They were given this glimpse. They were given this picture, but they had no idea. It was special revelation. No one knew. But they were told by the Spirit of God that the Redeemer was coming, that there would be one who would set them free. So the Old Testament is filled with this belief that there is going to be resurrection, that people will be redeemed in general, that they will come back to their Creator. And so the New Testament adds to these promises. John 5.24, Jesus says himself, I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death into life. Believe in me. Believe that I am God. Believe that I am. And the spirit that was dead upon your conception in your mother's womb will be brought to life. Just like that. Will be brought to life. I will bring your spirit to life. You see, he's not talking about a physical death, a physical decaying of our bodies. He's saying there was a greater death that you aren't even aware of, that you were born with a spirit, the actual being that goes on longer than the 80 years that we have on this earth. And you don't know this, but you were born and it was dead. 
You were dead in your transgressions. You didn't do anything. You didn't make bad choices as a kid. You were born with it. It's a condition we have. It's fatal. And Jesus says, believe in me and the one who sent me, and I will raise your spirit to life. John 6:40. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Woo! For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. You see, the promise is over and over again. Over and over and over. He said, I'm going to raise myself from the dead and I'm going to raise you from the dead. So why is our hope of resurrection tied to believing in Jesus? Because he did it first, right? Yes, there were other men who were brought back from the dead, but Jesus is the firstborn who came back from the dead. You know what he did? He stayed alive. All those other guys, they had to die twice. You ever thought about that? Like as cool as it was to be Lazarus and raised from the dead, he had to go and do it again. Oh man, I've already done this. The guy who was thrown on the bones of Elijah, he's like, not again. Revelation 1.5 tells us Jesus Christ is the firstborn from the dead. He conquered it. He beat it. And then, of course, there is this little problem of an empty grave. You see, do not undermine, do not belittle or think it's a small thing that the grave where Jesus was buried, the tomb he was put in, remains to this day empty. Isn't that crazy? We sometimes think, oh, yeah, but I mean, grave robbers could have, really? Okay, well, let's, let's look at some examples, okay, throughout human history. There's this guy, Muhammad, 500 years or so after Jesus, he walked the earth. He was uh, seen as a god. Many came to his religion and adhered to the faith. And you know what? He died. And then he was buried in the city of Medina. You can visit his grave to this day. In fact, that's exactly what millions and millions of worshipers do every year. And guess what? They go and they worship the bones of a dead prophet. Because he's dead. They know he's dead. About 500 years before Jesus was born, okay? Before he was born, there's this other religion formed by this man named Siddhartha. Siddhartha, and we know him as Buddha, and he taught many great things and wonderful teachings that to this day we believe are just so smart. Well, he died as well, and they cremated him. So you can't see his bones, but you know what you can see from Siddhartha in Sri Lanka in the temple? His tooth. They saved one of his teeth, and it sits there on a shrine, and people go to worship the tooth of Buddha. That's true. That's all true. Like, go look it up. This is what people do. And they call us crazy because we worship a God who conquered death and is alive, who beat it and is no longer. See, if you go to the tomb of Jesus, his body isn't there. It's gone. He rose. He said he would rise. He repeatedly told us, Matthew 16, 21, from the time his disciples saw Jesus transfigured on the mountain, Jesus explained to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem. He must suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, then the teachers of the law, the Christians, and he must be killed on the third day. 
to be raised to life. Do you hear this? This was not a mystery. They were not shocked. They should have not been shocked at communion, although they were, just like we're always shocked whenever God does something amazing in our life. We're like, oh, he does exist. But they were shocked, right? Matthew 27, 63 and 64. Jesus mentioned it so often that he was going to raise from the dead that the Jewish leaders said, remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver, they called Christ the deceiver, Tell me that right there isn't the spirit of the devil, right? What's his name mean? Accuser. Yes, deceiver, accuser. They called to him. That deceiver said after three days he will rise again, so we give this order that the tomb would be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come, steal the body, and tell the people he has been raised from the dead. Won't the last beat deception be worse than the first? So in case you were wondering, maybe that is what the disciples did. They just went and they hid it, and then for some reason they all decided to die horrible, gruesome deaths for this body that they just went and dug a shallow ditch for and threw it in. Maybe that is what you thought. Well, the Pharisees thought that too. So they didn't just put any stone in front of that tomb. They put a massive stone which took dozens of men to roll into place, get it there, and then put the most feared guards on the planet at the time, Roman soldiers, to stand in front of it. And along comes little Jewish Peter with his sword that he cut the guy's ear off with, and he's like, hey, get out of my way. We're going to steal that body. See how stupid that sounds? <laughs> Roman guards... No one is going to go and rob this thing. The elite of the elite are guarding it with a stone that is so strong, no small group of people could move it. But they weren't prepared for the kind of power that was inside the tomb. They weren't prepared for the rock to begin to move from the inside. And so then there's these witnesses. If I haven't given you enough already to not fear death, then there's these witnesses, the apostles saw him. He showed himself to Paul. There were 500 individuals who saw him. You see, there were skeptics immediately. Immediately. Just because you're a skeptic 2,000 years later, that's nothing new. Immediately there were people who were saying, oh, his disciples just took his body. And what would they say? They'd say, go talk. They're still alive. He showed himself to 500 people. Go in. Go talk to someone who physically saw him with their own eyes. And here's the thing, the biblical presentation of the evidence of Jesus' resurrection is so compelling that even in our day, in our modern thinking, scientific times, it has been known to convert the harshest critics. The harshest critics. Listen to these names, write them down if you want to check them out. Dr. Simon Greenleaf was a, a skeptic from Harvard Law School. He wrote three volumes on the laws of legal evidence. Would you say he's an expert or no? Would you say he's more of an expert than you? Maybe. I don't know. I know a lot. He, was, he mocked Christians. I'm just making sure you're awake. He mocked Christians in his law classes for their belief in fables and fairy tales. He made fun of them. Until one day he was challenged by a Christian student to apply the own laws in his book towards the case of Christ. He said... If you can apply your laws, then I will allow you to continue to make fun of me. I will receive it. But apply what you say here. So he did. 
The evidence was so convincing, he later wrote that the resurrection of Jesus is one of the best established facts of history. You see, you may hear from people today that it's a myth and it's a fable and it's a fairy tale and it's for the weak-minded, it's for those who need a crutch to get them through life because they don't have education or money or looks or whatever else. But that's the same lies that the devil's been spewing since the beginning of time. Nothing's changed. There's this two men from Cambridge, Dr. Benjamin Gilbert West and Lord Littleton, such cool names. They were so fed up with Christianity, they wanted to destroy it. So they took a leave of absence to study and write a book to both refute the resurrection and the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. They hated Christians. What happened? They couldn't discredit the witness of Scripture. As a result, their study, they became ardent believers and wrote, Reject not until you have examined the evidence. Another one was Dr. Frank Morrison. He liked Jesus well enough but thought the resurrection was a myth, so he was going to tackle this and dispel any of the rumors that he was uh, resurrected from the dead. He couldn't refute it. And in the process of writing his book, like the others, he committed his life to Christ, and he wrote about his struggles with his conscience in the book, Who Moved the Stone? Friends, I talk with a lot of young people today, and I hear and see on the news and... Um, from around our county, young people who have written off God, who have completely, you know, the book, and they've written them off because of views on sex. They've written them off because of views on pleasure or suffering. They've written them off because he's not a social justice warrior. They have written him off, and they don't know even the very first thing about who he is or where to look for the evidence of who he is. And if you're here this morning, and that, that's you, and you say, man, I'm, that's me, I'm not going to raise my hand or anything, but yeah. I just, I want to challenge you this morning. How much have you actually looked into it? How many articles outside of the Huffington Post have you read that actually talk about the evidence that existed? Because it's not a lack of evidence that I don't fear death. It's not because there isn't enough proof it's because when you give your life to Jesus Christ, his Holy Spirit comes in, resurrects a dead spirit in me, and becomes my reason for living. And yes, my flesh causes me to wonder, but his spirit always brings me back. And that's the beauty of sanctification. The last and final thing here is this. He gave us two powerful images Christ left with us. Corinthians 11.26, if you have the cup and the bread, take it out now. Because if you needed one final reason to not fear death, if you needed one final moment in your life to say, you know what? Death will not control me. Sickness will not control me. Fear that my children could die will not control me. Jesus left us with this communion. When Paul wrote about it to the Corinthians, he said, whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, that we proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. 
This is why we ask that you have a relationship with Christ if you're going to partake in this, because if you don't have a relationship in Christ, you aren't just drinking a terrible-tasting wafer and equally terrible juice. You are proclaiming unto yourself that Christ died and rose again and he will come again. But you don't believe it. And Paul says, do not do that. Otherwise, you take upon yourself unnecessary judgment. So if you do not have a relationship with Christ, we ask you abstain from partaking, not because of some rules or rituals, but because of what the very act says. It says, I proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. And so what we proclaim this morning is the same thing that Jesus proclaimed with his disciples in that upper room. That as we partake of the bread, we realize and recognize exactly what the writer of Hebrews says, that this is his body, fully flesh, fully man. We remember that God Almighty stepped down into his creation, became part of his creation, is sympathetic with us, is sympathetic with your trials and your struggles, your temptations and your pain. He is not some king that has never hurt or, or had any uh, need that wasn't met. He came out of, from his throne down into our world. And when we partake of this bread, we remember that he is fully man. Father, we pray you would bless the bread now, the body of the Son, the Redeemer of our souls, the Resurrector of our spirits. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's partake together. And then in a most beautiful, unimaginable image, he takes the cup, and after already having established with his disciples that he is fully human, he is flesh and blood. He shows that he is also fully God. Because only the sacrifice of God, only the pure blood of God, would be capable of establishing the new covenant. You hear me? This is the blood of the new covenant. Once my blood is shed, you will be under a new covenant with God. And all you have to do to be a part of it is look to me, trust me, call out my name. Father, thank you for this understanding that the blood of your son Jesus covers our sin, covers the shame, guilt, anything we would feel, and brings life into this world. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. You see, communion is not about death. It's actually about life. As we prepare to close in worship here, I want you to think about this. He was at what feast? You know the feast he was at? Passover feast, right? The Passover feast isn't about death as much as it is about life. That the angel of death passed over the homes that had the blood of the lamb. That their firstborn children live. And when you see communion, that it is the life, it is the very life force of this world, of creation, of everything. Jesus is the lamb that died that we might live. He is the promise that your sins are buried. He is the promise that whatever you have done, when you lay it at the foot of the cross, it is no longer yours. He has removed it from you as far as the east is from the west, and he does not hold it against you. Do you hear me this morning? That is not by my own authority that I speak, but by the authority of the Word of God alone.
For some of us today, we need to hear this message. We need to hear it in a world that is increasingly vile and divisive and hates Christianity. They hate Jesus. They hate his followers. You're going to need to see God the way the writer of Hebrew Psalm if you're going to stand firm in the coming months and years. I want to read for you and close with 1 Corinthians 15. And then we're going to stand in worship. Our prayer partners will be up front. If you're here this morning and you want to give your life to Christ, come forward. If you're here this morning and you want prayer, you want prayer for courage or boldness in your family or at work or to a neighbor, if you're here this morning and God's Spirit has touched you and you just need to come before Him and say, God, help me see you. Help me see you like this, then come forward. But Paul says this, I want to tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye. At the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. For the perishable perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with the immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, when man has been clothed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ and the mortal with the immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death, you have been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O grave, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, for he has given us victory through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.